Um, hello everybody, I'm Kia Ora. Um, so today we will talk about Ostroad's new guides to road design, uh, part one and seven. Uh, we have more than 700 people registered for today's session, so welcome to you all and it's great to have your company. My name is Ekaterina, uh, I'm a communications officer at Ostroads and I will be moderating today's session together with uh, Madeleine Bikavak, who will moderate the Q&A part of the webinar. First of all, uh, I would like to acknowledge the Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as the custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting today. I pay my respect to Eldest past, present and emerging. I also acknowledge the Treaty of Waitani and Maori as the regional people of New Zealand. A little bit about Australians. Uh, we are the collective of Australasian transport and traffic agencies, and our focus is to support our member organizations to deliver an improved road transport network. The project that we are focusing on today uh, was delivered under the Road Safety and Design Program, which is managed by Michael Newstick. A little bit of housekeeping. Um, so our presenters will speak for 40 minutes and then we will have a Q&A session for 15 minutes. The reports and uh, the slides today's session is based on can be downloaded from the handout section of your sidebar, which you will find on the right-hand side of your screen. Uh, there's also a question section there, so please use it to send us your questions uh, for the Q&A at any stage during the webinar. If your question relates to any particular slide, uh, include the number of that slide in your message um, to help us answer your question as best as we can. You can also use that same questions box uh, to let us know if you have any technical problems. But just a quick tip, if you lose sound or your picture freezes, um, the issue is most likely with your connection. So closing your browser and rejoining the session using your registration link usually helps. This session is being recorded and we will let you know when the recording is available on our website. Um, if you listen to podcasts, um, you can also find Ostrots in your podcast app. Um, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce our presenters today, uh, Noel O'Callaghan and Malcolm Mark. We will first hear from Noel. Uh, he's a principal professional engineer in the transport safety team at the Australian Road Research Board. Uh, Noel specializes in road design, uh, having had extensive experience in the South Australian Transport Department. He is a member of the Ostroads Road, uh, road Design Task Force and the Ostroads Safety Barrier Assessment Panel. Our second presenter is Malcolm Mark. Uh, Malcolm is a civil engineer at the Australian Road Research Board uh, within the, safety, um, the transport safety team. He specializes in road design, road safety, and traffic engineering with experience within state and local government. Um, during his time at ARB, he has worked on various Austro's projects, uh, updating the guide to road design. So welcome to our presenters, and it's over to you, Noel. Thanks, Ekaterina. Oh, just one second. Okay. So you? Yep. Yep. Thanks, Ekaterina. So, just an introduction to the team that was involved in this project. Uh, um, the, the team comprised mainly of people from ARB and uh, three of us from the Adelaide office of ARB, but also Blair Turner in, in Melbourne. Uh, in the initial stages and Richard Fanning was a, a big input into this, uh, Richard representing Ostroads but also uh, um, from DOT Vic Roads in Victoria. So that was the project team. The review team is the Ostroads working group uh, which fed that into the 
Austroads Task Force, that's the Road Design Task Force, and then fed that into the Austroads Board. The Austroads Task Force, um, it's all states and territories are represented on the on the task force and New Zealand are, are represented on that. Also, there's representative representatives from the LGA, uh, so representing the local government throughout Australia, and Consult Australia, which is an industry association. So they're they're a member of the task force as well. Um, David uh, Bobman was the uh, program manager while the project was happening. Uh, the current program manager is Michael Newesteg, who's the new road safety and design pro program manager. Uh, just a bit about the project background. Uh, the project began in August 2018, and the purpose was to review and restructure the existing parts one, two, and eight. So part one was called introduction to road design, part two was called design considerations, and part eight was called process and documentation. So the, the, the brief was to remove ambiguity from those parts, provide an update and specific guidance for emerging and innovative road design practice. And in particular, we focused on uh, legal liability, um, the, the innovative treatments, as I mentioned, but also there was a previous project that addressed the fundamental objectives of road design. And a lot of the stuff that was in that project was incorporated into this review. So firstly, the development of part one. So we reviewed the parts and we proposed to remove the duplication by combining parts one and two into one guide. Um, we then proposed new contents. So incorporating the contents that were in those parts, but also introducing some new contents as well. And we included um, all of part eight in, in as appendices. Some of the inclusions for this parts were for safe systems, uh, it better defines what road safety audits were, and also address the safe system assessments and when and where they were, they were to be used. Legal liability was another consideration that got uh, beefed up in this, in this part. And to emphasize that Yes, an engineer is liable, but if uh, decisions are defensible, uh, if they're documented well, they can be defensible. And also, yes, the engineer is liable, but road safety accountability is shared across all stakeholders. So it's not just sole responsibility for the designer. We also needed to consider multimodal considerations, and this came out of the network task force who reviewed the guide to road design and said they wanted additional guidance for vulnerable road users. So that's now been included in the guide. As far as uh, context sensitive design, but also 
performance-based design in particular. There's more emphasis on that within the guide. So performance-based says that there, <clears throat> there's a relationship between geometric design and traffic operations on the outcome. So rather than just meeting the dimensional design criteria, which is um, how road design used to used to be uh, carried out in the past. It's now looking at that relationship between geometric design and outcomes. And there was a, there's also a consideration of network design, which refers to the road stereotype project. Um, and that ensures that road designers understand the whole network rather than just looking at projects in isolation. So that was part one, part seven. It was decided that guidance on anything new, but not yet universally accepted, be included as a separate part, hence the creation of part seven, new and emerging treatments. With the new treatments, due restrictions want to trial emerging treatments to improve a number of things, road safety, road operational efficiencies, environmental sustainability but it's, it's recognised that there's limited guidance on how to set up that trial and how to monitor and evaluate it. So this project developed an innovation framework to help guide road designers when working on their space. So that's the first part of part seven. In addition, a number of new and emerging treatments that have not experienced widespread use or evaluation were incorporated as part of the guide with a section to summarise emerging information on the application of these treatments. And it's the intention that um, information will be added to part seven as these new treatments come out. Uh, and in addition to that, once knowledge is fully developed on these treatments, the content and everyone and it gains universal acceptance, the content will be moved to the other relevant parts of the guide to road design. The new structure of the guide to road design shows where the new parts fit. So we have part one, which is objectives of road design. We've got the new part seven, new and emerging treatments, and that's where that fits. And part two, which is yet to be, it's being developed at the moment is network-wide design. I'll now hand over to Malcolm to tell us a bit more about the restructure of these guides. Thanks, Noel. So, I'll start by talking about uh, part one and um, some of the things Noel sort of mentioned about uh, where the information from part two and part eight um, have now gone. Um, so yeah, I guess the biggest change from restructuring the guide to road design has meant part two and eight are now incorporated into part one. Um, so I guess if you are looking for uh, content that was in part two, uh, these are the sections that you will find them. So um, the main topics being um, design considerations, uh, road design objectives, context sensitive design, design domain and um, geotechnical uh, investigations. Um, part eight has essentially retained its uh, existing structure and has just been moved and is now um, part one, appendix A. So you'll find that there. Um, uh, 
So as Noel mentioned, um, yeah, I guess uh, there was probably a little bit lacking in, in part one about um, the SAFE system. So I'll just uh, discuss a bit more about that. So um, safety is a primary objective in, in road design um, and it is pursued in accordance with uh, the SAFE system approach. Um, so the SAFE system approach is a, a guiding philosophy uh, that's been adopted by leading road safety nations um, and it's been the foundation of the road safety strategies uh, and action plans adopted in both uh, Australia and New Zealand um, since 2004. Um, so the safe system approach, uh, it works on the principle that uh, it's not acceptable for a road user to be killed or seriously injured if they make a mistake. Uh, the safe system approach aims to create a forgiving road system based on four principles. So firstly, uh, people make mistakes uh, and some crashes are inevitable. Uh, secondly, people are vulnerable. So our bodies have a limited ability to withstand crash forces without being seriously injured or killed. Thirdly, uh, we, we need to share responsibility. And Noel, Noel touched on this earlier. So system designers and, and people who use the roads must, must all share responsibility for creating a road system uh, where crash forces uh, do not result in death or serious injury. And lastly, uh, we need to strengthen all parts of the system. So um, this includes roads and roadsides, speeds, vehicles, and, and road use itself. And this, this will ensure that if, if one part of the system fails, other parts will still protect the people involved. So, so um, we really built uh, the safe system approach into part one. Um, so you can refer to section 2.2.1 uh, for further guidance on uh, the safe system. So um, road design plays a key role in almost all aspects of uh, the road management process. Uh, the stages of the road management process and how the different parts of the guide to road design align with this process are outlined in this figure. So um, designers choose the features of the road uh, and the dimensions of its elements based on technical guides, calculations, and their own experience and judgment. Um, however, a very important principle in choosing these dimensions is to uh, avoid combinations of, of minimum or, or limiting values uh, of different design elements um, because this has the potential to quickly reduce the inherent safety of the overall solution. So um, the, the practice of good road design, especially under um, various constraints, involves uh, judgment as well as calculation. It involves um, compromises between conflicting goals. Um, so yeah, experience really assists the designer to arrive in a, an appropriate uh, balance that cannot be met on, by a system of, of uh, mathematical rules alone. So, so the Osroads Guides um, gives a range of values within, within which the designer has reasonable flexibility to produce an appropriate design solution for a specific problem whilst retaining a reasonable overall level of uniformity. So just a reminder to our audience to send through any um, questions you have for the Q&A session at the end. Um, and to help us answer your question, uh, please let us know the, uh, the slide number your question relates to if possible. So I'm now gonna uh, talk about um, the new uh, part seven, which is new and emerging treatments. 
So although there are many established treatments available to practitioners, there are many emerging treatments that could be applied to achieve even greater benefits. Um, in other cases, there may be gaps uh, in the tools available to adequately address objectives, and therefore innovation may be required. So there's opportunities for, for these new and emerging treatments to align with the safe system approach, uh, to improve road safety outcomes uh, based on changing demands in transport networks, uh, gives us opportunities to test low cost and, and high impact solutions, and also um, builds community acceptance and understanding of these new, new treatments. Um, yeah, as Noel discussed before, information research uh, or results for new and emerging treatments will be captured in the new uh, part seven until there's a strong enough evidence and confidence for the treatment to move into the main guide parts. Um, practitioners are encouraged to contact OSROADS uh, with any relevant information you have on, on any new and emerging treatments. Um, and, and, and these may be uh, included in this section. So a trial fragment work has been developed uh, for part seven, uh, as shown on the screen here. So I'll just I'll just sort of run through it with you now. Um, I guess you would you would generally start this in the planning phase, and there may not maybe a specific goal uh, you're looking to achieve. Um, you might need it, but you might need to try something outside of the square uh, to meet the target. Um, so you may have to trial a uh, something new uh, or innovative. Um, so once you've settled on a treatment, you might have to uh, get some approvals from any relevant authorities. Um, and then sort of comes to the implementation of, of the uh, treatment itself and, and monitoring needs to be undertaken throughout the project, specifically uh, before, during and after. And this will allow for uh, an evaluation of the trial to be undertaken. Okay, uh, once once uh, the evaluation is done, um, there's, there's an emphasis that uh, a sharing of the results uh, to uh, industry and, and, and particularly OSROADS uh, is, is very useful. Um, it just grows that knowledge base. So the structure of part seven is that it's divided up into these five treatment types. So intersections, mid-block, motorways, uh, pedestrian, cyclists, and any other treatments that don't fit into these categories. Um, uh, the guide uh, for each treatment in part seven, it, it talks about um, its effectiveness, uh, its applicability, um, any implementation issues there may be or have been found with them and, and provides some uh, good design guidance where possible. Uh, also within part seven, there's, there's some links to some newish treatments where information is already contained within other guides, um, such as the guide to traffic management. So I'll now, now pass back to Noel, and he's gonna run through some of these treatments that are captured in the new part seven. Thanks, Malcolm. Our first new treatment is turbo roundabouts. Turbo roundabouts are multi-lane roundabouts where the vehicles are required to enter specific lanes depending on which exit they wish to take. Uh, raised line marking is used to further discourage lane changing 
and to encourage lower speeds. Uh, there's limited informa local information about this. The photo on the screen is a turbo from the Netherlands. So the vehicles are driving on the right-hand side of the road. So you just need to get your head around that. The green line shows, uh, shows the vehicles in the curbside lane must continue straight through due to the raised line marking. The blue line is the, the vehicles in the median side lane and the, they must turn in this instance they must turn left due to the raised line marking. Turbo roundabouts were developed to improve the capacity of two-lane roundabouts. The conventional two-lane roundabouts were found to be not adequate where there are unequal flows so such as when the dominant flow in, is in one direction and, and drivers were undertaking weaving manoeuvres within the circulating lanes to change lanes. The effect of converting existing roundabouts into turbo roundabouts was a radical improvement in driver lane discipline and subsequent reduction in crashes. Uh, there's, a, there's a link there on the screen and there's a, a YouTube video, it goes for about three minutes and that um, shows how the, the vehicles move through a roundabout and that, that roundabout on the, on the video is actually a four-legged roundabout so it's even more informative than this and right at the end they flip the video so you can imagine what it's like to be driving on the correct side of the road. The next treatment is uh, two minus one roads. A two minus one road consists of a two-way road, uh, two-way traffic operating on a single width traffic lane with wide shoulders, typically supported by wide edge lines and audio tactile line marking. So the treatment is such that the vehicles are encouraged to drive in the centre of the road, which uh, combined with the edge lines and ATLMs helps address runoff road crashes. Uh, as vehicles are travelling on the same path, uh, they need to slow down and yield as they pass uh, to avoid head-on head-on crashes. They're suitable for narrow, low-volume, low-speed roads that do not warrant more significant investment and where traffic capacity is unlikely to be a principal factor. It, it means that the, tra the opposing traffic are on, on the same path, so that you need good sight distance. So that's, that's described in part three as intermediate sight distance, which is double the normal stopping sight distance. So they need to be able to see each other when they're when they're approaching. If the sight distance isn't there, well then you can do localised widening and introduce a centre line to allow people to to pass each other. There's again there's little local design guidance available. So it and it's lit, that treatment is limited outside of Europe. The the Danish guidance recommends using a total road width of 7.9 metres, as you can see on the, on the screen. So that's a single 3.5 driving lane, one metre wide sealed shoulders, 1.2 metre wide verges. And there's a caution that that lane in the middle, 3.5, should be no wider than that. Otherwise, you could get a motorist encouraged to use the same path as each other. 
The next treatment is the displaced right turn. It's also known as continuous flow intersection. So it's an intersection turn modification that involves shifting the right turn movements to the right of the opposing through lane. Uh, right turning vehicles then can cross the opposing traffic via a signalised intersection. By shifting the position of the right turning traffic, it means that the opposing through movements and opposing right turns can occur simultaneously, which improves intersection capacity and reduces conflict points. The right turn movement is shown in blue, so both, both of those legs have got the displaced right turn from the left and from the right. So that's that's the movement. And as you can see, that that and the red is the the through movement of the roads. They may be applicable uh, where main roads with high volumes of through traffic and little demand for U-turn approaches. Uh, they're in fairly um, high volume, high capacity um, intersections. If the volume to capacity ratio is greater than 0.8 in on two opposing intersection approaches, they may be applicable. Um, if the cross product of right turn vehicles per hour and opposing through vehicles per hour is greater than 150,000 uh, or 35% or more of the total throughput of the approach, or if the right turn volume is greater than 250 vehicles per hour, that's pretty high and the opposing through volume is greater than 500. Um, also, if right turn queues at an intersection spill beyond the right turn storage base, you can use them. Um, uh, you also encourage to use them at the intersections with a higher crash rate due to turning vehicles, and you need to have sufficient land available to construct the displaced right turns. The advantages are that it's improved traffic signal efficiency with reduced signal phases and noticeable increase intersection capacity leading to reduced congestion and travel demands. There's also a reduced number of conflicts at the main intersection. Some disadvantages of this treatment are that <clears throat> the displaced right turning vehicles and some of the other vehicles may need to stop twice. The treatment needs a larger footprint compared with a conventional at-grade intersection and drivers might get confused about the design of the intersection. The next treatment is the double roundabout and there's an example here shown in South Australia where we converted a so it's a five-legged roundabout into a double roundabout. Double roundabout consists of two small roundabouts that are connected with a link road between the two. It's designed as a single system, but the drivers need to treat each individual roundabout as a separate traffic control device and give way to the traffic on the right. They're useful for improving an existing staggered junction as they avoid the need to rely on one of the approach roads. Uh, they can be used at overloaded single roundabouts, so you reduce the circulating flow past the critical entries and that, therefore that increases capacity. At junctions with more than four entries, where they achieve better capacity and make more efficient use of the space. Um, the visual cues should inform the drivers that 
that there's an impending double roundabout ahead. Drivers negotiate both roundabouts should be aware of the intermediate giveaway priority at the end of the link between the two. One of the key aspects of designing an effective double roundabout is to ensure that there's sufficient queuing space provided at the intermediate giveaway priority between the two roundabouts. The next um, treatment is the gateway treatments, also referred to as entry treatment or thresholds. They are used to delineate the transition from higher speed to lower speed environments or to mark the change from a major to a residential road. It can be achieved through the use of raised pavements, road narrowing, speed signs, and they can be active or static, some coloured pavements or different pavement types. They can be used along a route, marking the transition point between two different road environments. They can also be used, and this is probably where they're most common, on side roads to indicate the change in environment between the through road and the side road. An Austroad study indicates a 25% reduction in casualty rates for, uh, in the rural application of this treatment. So that that's um, resulting from a 15K reduction in mean speed and 25K reduction in the 85th percentile when used in the rural context. It's suitable for transition zones or where there are clear changes in traffic conditions in the speed environment, such as a shopping strip. To me, most effective, the threshold needs to be located at the point where the development commences. So the, the driver is in tune with the cues that are, are being provided by the threshold treatment and should be backed up in, in the environment, such as the use of painted mediums after the threshold to maintain the speed reductions must ensure that the street furniture associated is not hazardous to errand vehicles and pavement treatment should have adequate skid resistance, particularly for motorcyclists. I will now pass you back to Malcolm to run through the rest of the part six treatments. Thanks, Noel. Uh, so the next treatment we've got here is the mini roundabout, which uh, I guess has its name namesake it's a small roundabout with a small uh a solid painted uh circle or it might be a low tra traversable dome uh, in the middle of the intersection um mini roundabouts were sort of first introduced to local roads in the uk back in the 1970s um generally at sites where design constraints prevented uh the installation of uh, alternative measures of control like a, a full-size roundabout or uh, traffic signals. Um, mini roundabouts are, are typically uh, much cheaper than than uh, a traditional size roundabout um, and that because they they you know might only require paint or a different uh, paving material uh, to di distinguish the uh, central island um, and they can usually be installed uh, with only relatively uh, minor changes to the intersection geometry. Um, while the priority rules are the same for a mini roundabout as a traditional roundabout, there are often differences uh, in the speed reduction performance of mini roundabouts. Um, hence, they are generally only used in lower speed environments. Uh, Highways England provides um, 
to design standards for mini roundabouts in the UK, and they recommend that uh, the circular uh, solid white road marking in the middle of the roundabout has a diameter between uh, one and four metres um, and, and is capable of being driven over. Um, if it is, is domed or raised, the standard recommends that it doesn't exceed 100 mil in height. Um, cars should be able to take the roundabout without needing to cross or, or drive over the, the white circle or raised section in the middle of the roundabout. Um, one of the key safety benefits of roundabouts in general uh, is their ability to manage both uh, speeds and angles of conflict um, by forcing vehicles to deflect from their path of travel to, to navigate the intersection. Um, because the central island of a mini roundabout is traversable, it may be possible for vehicles to travel uh, straight through without deviating from a straight path, which uh, can allow for excessive speeds. Um, so measures should be considered to encourage the channeling of vehicles so they travel around the island. Um, this can be done by creating deflection on, on the intersection approaches, either through uh, physical means like uh, splitter islands or pavement marking. Um, but yeah, obviously pavement markings are, are likely to be less effective. Um, and if horizontal deflection is not achievable, then vertical deflection may be uh, something to look into. So now we move on to raised intersection platforms. Um, these help to slow uh, drivers down um, on approach to or through uh, an intersection um, by providing that uh, vertical deflection. So the entire intersection itself can be raised um, and the pavement surface can sometimes be flushed with the adjoining footpath. Um, the other way of doing it is uh, having raised sections uh, placed in advance of the intersection um, and that achieves a similar effect. Um, you can also incorporate pedestrian crossings uh, into the raised platforms to, to emphasise the presence of uh, pedestrians and, and vulnerable uh, road users um, and this helps to slow traffic down at, at these conflict points. Um, there was an Osroad study done in 2017 and it found a 40% reduction in uh, category crashes from uh, the application of this treatment. Um, but there are limitations uh, to it. Um, firstly, it may be unsuitable for, for roads um, uh, that have higher operating speeds. Um, it shouldn't be used on roads with poor sight distance and, and it can have an effect on drainage. So that's a consideration that um, you need to take into account. Um, so VicRoad provides design guidance in their design note 0307 um, and they provide some guidance on, on where you might locate um, these platforms, the shape, height, length um, and the grade of the treatment. Um, the table on the screen uh, is taken from this design note. Um, and provides a range of grades you might use for varying operating speeds. So roundabouts with raised platforms on approaches. So um, in situations where a roundabout has high approach speeds uh, and, and it might also have uh, poor horizontal deflection, um, it can be augmented with the use of raised platforms on the approaches. 
Um, the platforms moderate approach and entry speeds in a similar way that approach curves uh, in a large central island would do at a conventional roundabout. Um, the platforms can also serve a dual purpose uh, as a raised crossing, similar uh, to the raised intersection platforms that we just talked about. Um, the benefits of this treatment uh, can include uh, improved general safety through reduced impact speeds, uh, reduced space uh, required compared to a traditional roundabout, uh, and potential cost reductions because of that. Um, there's a lot of current knowledge on, on safety platforms uh, when, in, when used uh, as a traffic calming treatment, um, and, that, and that can sort of be transferred uh, when applying it to uh, roundabout approaches. Um, but it's important to consider all road users and, and, and ensuring that this treatment caters for the safe movement of um, uh, heavy vehicles, buses, motorcyclists, cyclists and pedestrians is, uh, is a key consideration. If uh, the platforms are used as pedestrian crossings as well, uh, there can be benefits of locating these along pedestrian desire lines. Um, but this needs to be balanced to ensure an appropriate setback from the roundabout itself to achieve uh, both uh, the desired speed reduction as well as uh, reducing the risk of uh, vehicles queuing within the roundabout. Um, ramp gradients should consider adverse operational effects, um, potential for overturning of heavy vehicles, um, drainage, uh, drainage issues, um, and um, slopes between, I guess, the top of the platform um, and, and the adjoining curb um, can be hazardous to cyclists. So uh, reduction of excessive sight distance. Um, so in general, the safety of an intersection is dependent on many factors, and, and one of this is uh, the available sight distance. Um, however, there can be instances where excessive sight distance allows drivers to uh, increase their speed and take risks by ant anticipating gaps um, that might not be present when they uh, actually get to the intersection. Um, so to counteract this uh, situation, um, excessive sight distance can be reduced. Um, this can be done by using screens or hedges um, to reduce um, how much you can see um, and, and, and it forces vehicles to slow down as they're uncertain if they need to stop. But it should be noted that minimum sight distance requirements uh, should still be provided at these locations. Um, this treatment may be suitable uh, at an intersection with uh, turning or crossing crash history and, and excessive available site distance, but should only be used after a detailed site assessment. Um, following the installation, the site should be carefully monitored. Um, the screens should, should be placed carefully so, so adequate site distance is maintained uh, close to the intersection. Um, you might need to install additional signs um, to warn drivers of the intersection um, and should also take into account that the screens themselves can present as an additional hazard so that needs to be taken into account when, when designing uh, something like this. 
Um, cycling and pedestrian friendly uh, roundabouts. Um, in general, uh, roundabouts do not have such a positive effect on uh, cyclists and pedestrian safety. Uh, if you compare the, the positive effect it has on, on motor vehicle safety, um, roundabouts uh, might even increase the number of cyclists and pedestrian related crashes compared to, uh, say, a traditional uh, signalised intersection. Um, the cause of the safety issues stem from the, the difficulty for motorists to cycle cyclists um, as they enter the roundabout or, or pedestrians uh, crossing. Um, as such, uh, specific treatments are required to improve cyclists and, and pedestrian safety at roundabouts. Um, the, the consensus from guidelines in, in USA, uh, Netherlands and, and, and Australia uh, is that there should not be a dedica dedicated cyclist lanes uh, within the roundabout itself. Uh, typically cyclists uh, should use the existing traffic lane or an individual cycle or pedestrian path uh, should be provided uh, parallel to the circulatory roadway, uh, particularly at higher traffic volumes. Splitter islands uh, should be included where possible to improve pedestrian safety. Um, consideration uh, also uh, needs to be given to whether cyclists and pedestrians have right of way uh, through the roundabout. The dot points on the screen provide uh, possible treatments that can improve um, the safety of cyclists and pedestrians when um, negotiating a roundabout. So if if um, if you are providing a separate path uh, around the roundabout, um, which does have right of way at the crossing points for um, crossing users, uh, there there may be issues with this, um, and 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 these these might be um, increasing congestion, um, and then there might even be confusion about um, who who has priority between motor vehicles and um, motor vehicles on the departure leg and um, cyclists and, and pedestrians um, uh, going across the crossing. So that needs to be taken into consideration. Road diets. Um, so road diets are a, a road narrowing measure um, and they've been extensively used in the USA. But typically it involves converting a, a four lane road, so a two lane, two way, uh, road into a road with uh, only one lane in each direction um, and a two-way right turn lane in the centre. So um, a road diet can, can also provide enough space to install a, a bicycle lane uh, or on-street parking. So, so at its core, a road diet is a real, reallocation of uh, road space from one user group to another. Um, the design will vary substantially depending on uh, what existing arrangements are in place, um, but traffic volumes will, will play, play a large part in determining if this treatment is suitable for a road. Um, the Federal Highway Administration in the USA, um, so they, they, they outline that a road with less than 10,000 vehicles per day um, may provide a great candidate um, and capacity shouldn't be affected um, by a road diet, but anything over 10,000 vehicles a day, you, you'd want to do some further analysis um, to determine if capacity is affected. 
um, or you may need to put in some sporting changes if you are going to proceed with a road diet and that might be um, you know, signal retiming or something like that. That wraps up our presentation and I'm going to hand over to Madeline now to uh, moderate our uh, Q&A session. Thanks, Malcolm. Okay, um, we've got a number of questions, which is really positive. I think uh, we've got some feedback as well showing um, how many of the treatments people have used um, already, which is wonderful. And um, I guess as Malcolm and Noel both said, uh, you know, if you have some examples of these treatments, um, because they are sort of, you know, innovative treatments, there's not necessarily a lot of evaluations done on some of these treatments. It'd be really helpful to have that information to then be able to determine whether they should become part of the, the guides to road design parts three and four, or whether, you know, they may just stay in that um, trial sort of phase in, in part seven. So I'll just go through some of the questions. Um, Katarina, are you able to get to slide 27? Um, for us, please, showing the turbo roundabout. So we've got a few comments on this one. Thank you. Um, and I'll, I'll let you guys jump in as, as you'd like to. So uh, one from George has said that there's been a turbo roundabout in Newcastle for some time. If the roundabout is congested during peak hours, a turbo roundabout still valid? We want to have a chat about that one, guys. It, it, is it still valid? Was that the question? Mm. If it's, yes. Uh, yes, it should be. Yeah, it should be. Um, I guess there's no safety um, issues that you can think of now? No, I don't think so. No, no, not at all. I mean, the the major the major factor with the roundabout is that the, it, it controls lane movement within the circulating roundabout. So it doesn't allow any weaving between the two. Yep. But the crucial thing too is that the people need to be in the correct lane on the approach to the roundabout. There's no there's no swapping over once you get onto the roundabout. So you get in the correct <laughs> lane first and then and you're okay. We've also got another question about how it handles a U-turn movement. Do you want to just go through that one? Um, yeah, so a U-turn movement uh, can still be achieved. So um, if you look at the, the blue line on the slide, I guess uh, a vehicle doing a U-turn and, and note that they are driving on the uh, right-hand side. If they are doing the U-turn, they just stay sort of in that lane um and not turn off and then and then come back and but they are on the out in the outside lane yeah. thanks malcolm all right slide 28 now david edwards has given us um some feedback queensland main road trial to two minus one road west of Mackay. i hope i've said that correctly um around the year 2000 that was not a success I guess we would also like some feedback, you know, of positive and negative of these treatments to be able to incorporate it, um, um, help others understand whether or not to be using them in future. It's just something that, yeah, I think it would help either way, whatever feedback you have. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I mean, just to comment, uh, it's not yeah. a success, but yeah. we'd, we'd like to know a bit more about that. So we, yeah, we yes. can feed that into the, into the yeah. 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 And for further com comment, Madeline, is that the, the intent for part seven is to just capture practices that people have, we're aware of, people are trialling or aware of, and get some information and some guidance rather than waiting for for some of the treatments to to have a appropriate assessment validation and the work and the likes before they got incorporated into into the broader guidance material. Hmm. Thanks, Richard. Okay, slide 34, please, Ekaterina. Um, how far away from the platform? How far away is the platform from the roundabout limit line? We've got a question about that one. Is there a distance or is it um, engineering judgment? Who wants to have a go at that one? Yeah, so it's probably a bit of both, but um, in, in general, I guess the, the, we did read a bit about um, providing uh, sufficient capacity for say a standard passenger vehicle to store, I guess if they are on the departure leg and not uh, block the intersect, uh, block the roundabout itself. So um, something sort of in the realm of, of six or seven metres. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, that sort of has to be weighed up as well with um, the amount of, I guess, speed reduction you're wanting to, to, yeah. to get out of it. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, Malcolm. Okay. Now this one doesn't have a slide number, uh, but I think it's to do with multi-lane roundabouts. Given the significant impacts to people who walk and cycle, can we update the guidance to say that multi-lane roundabouts should only be installed where there are no desire lines for people on foot or bike, and where there is unlikely to be people walking or cycling through or across the roundabout? Um, that that would be a bit restrictive, but yes, for multi-lane roundabouts, uh, consideration needs to be given to pedestrians, and putting uh, pedestrian marked pedestrian paths around the roundabout is uh, goes a long way to ensuring that that happens. So yeah, it's a major consideration for for multi-lane roundabouts. Certainly the Sorry, no. Uh, sorry, it's a, yeah. certainly a consi consideration, an important consideration. Consider all your road users when you're considering any intersection treatment. Um, and if there is significant pedestrian demand, multi-lane roundabouts, that should be raising a, a flag that there's an issue to, to work through. Yeah. Yeah. Now, moving on to road diets, has there been any evidence of additional head-on accidents from applying a road diet? I must say we haven't seen the evaluations during the research phase of this, but no. Richard, do you have any anecdotal information? Not that I'm aware of, Madeline. Mm. Okay. I guess if anyone in the audience does, that'd be great to share that as well. Thank you. Yeah, I guess um, you highlighted a ch challenge with some of these, Madeline, to, to try and find any evaluation reports or any assessments that have been done on some of the treatments have been quite difficult. So. Yes, if there is yeah. information around, we'd be very interested to see it. Mm. Um, so I guess on that point, uh, Jen has asked, how often will you be updating part seven to incorporate new treatments? Um, 
I guess we didn't sort of put a time frame on that, but we did say as part of the project that, you know, as more evidence um, becomes available and more um, evaluations, then it would be updated throughout the guides. Yes, that, I mean, the way, the way the guides are set up now, they can be very readily updated. They're, they're electronic versions, everyone has access to them. So if you get yes. a, a new treatment, that can be easily added to the, to the guide. So yep. I would I would imagine yeah they'd be quite regular the updates for that. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, thank you. We've got a couple of questions here. Oh wow, the list just keeps going on and on. And there's some great examples. Thank you for sending them through, everyone. Um, we've got some questions around why are cycle lanes through roundabouts undesirable. Um, why they are undesirable. Yes. Yeah, so I guess um, there, there's sort of uh, there's sort of confusion as to, um, I guess, priorities. And, you know, if we, speed differentials is another one. Thanks, Noel. Um, but, yeah, I guess if you've got um, vehicles, you know, earning or, and then, you know, which there's a the chance for um, yeah, conflict there. So um, yeah, I guess the sort of approach from from, from yeah, I guess Australia and, and overseas is that yeah, the cyclist lanes aren't terminated around about. Yeah. yeah. In uh, in part six B, which deals with roundabouts, there's some uh, some direction there about. For local roundabouts where the speeds are comparable, the, the cyclists are there encouraged to take the lane so they can they can ride through the roundabouts. But certainly once you get up to the bigger roundabouts with the multi-lane and including including the the uh, turbo roundabouts, then consideration should be given to taking the cyclists on a on an outside path away from the roundabout because of the because of the differential. I don't think there's a single solution that fits all model for roundabouts is about the best I can I can say for roundabouts is you certainly need to understand the context and and the user demands and develop a solution but certainly there's not a one-size-fits-all approach that's probably applicable for every roundabout that's built it's mm. quite a difficult topic Okay, sticking with turbo roundabouts, how do you treat the excessive lane width required to handle PBS level two and three vehicles? Yeah, so that's... Uh, I would have to guess that you wouldn't put one on a route that's been gazetted. For... Uh, again, so that you can do the same as what you do with a conventional roundabout and have that, that paved area in the in the central island, you can have that semi-mountable so that mm. that accommodate the, the, the bigger vehicles. And can you accommodate more than two travelling lanes on a turbo roundabout? I don't think so. I, okay. I, yeah, I don't think so. No. Yep. Can't, can't, can't say I've ever seen one, no. No, no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, 
We're getting a lot of examples through. Thank you, everyone. Uh, ben has also made a comment about road diets and head-on crash assessment would be important. Um, and I, I guess that goes back to your answer before that we just haven't seen any evaluations. Um, so yeah, I think they're probably the obvious questions that we'll share for now. Um, we've only got a couple of minutes left. So we might, the ones that we haven't answered, uh, we, we will put something together and Katarina will send it out. Um, but I think you've really answered most of them, guys. Thank you. Thanks so much, everyone. Um, yeah, we do have a few questions um, left uh, and comments as well. So we will address those in writing and we'll send you the copy after the session. Um, and we just have a couple of slides uh, to finish off. Let me just move to slide 38. Oops, not that one, that one. Um, yeah, so as usual, before we wrap up, just a few words um, about our next sessions uh, on our calendar. Um, we will have another session this week. Um, so join us on Thursday for an overview of the um, options for managing um, the impacts of age heavy vehicles. In June, we will have a number of uh, webinars on pavements. So please uh, visit our website for more information and to register. Um, and um, yeah, thanks so much to our presenters and to everybody for being with us today. Um, as usual, once we close out today's session, there will be a questionnaire uh, on your screen. So please fill it in. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like. It uh, helps us a lot um, to understand um, what we did well. Um, and it also helps us to shape our, our future webinar program. And once again, today's session is being recorded. So we will let you know when the um, recording is published on our website. Um, thanks again, everybody. Um, stay well and safe and enjoy the rest of your, um, of your day. Thanks so much. See ya.